Welcome to Parenting in the Trenches. I'm Karen Peters, a registered clinical counselor, and I'm a mom. We're getting real about all things family from a mental health perspective. So let's get to it. Hi, parents. Welcome to this episode on kids and body image. What an important topic. Um, And what we're going to be really discussing today is something that uh, plants the idea around growing positive body image in a much bigger field. Um, It's one tree in a forest. And we're going to have a great conversation today with um, two very experienced therapists in this area. Renee Rieger is a mom to four kids. She's a wife. She is a registered clinical counselor, and she's the founder of Free to Be Talks, a nonprofit organization that promotes positive body image to youth, parents, and educators through education in schools, speaking events, and through media. And through her MA of counseling psychology, she developed and tested a research-based curriculum called Free to Be. 3,000 boys and girls across North America so far have gone through this program. She's also the co-founder for Care for Women, which is a nonprofit that supports resources for new mums, and she's a contributor to a blog for the Huffington Post. Um, Her work has been featured in so many places, people. Time, Darling, Good Men Project, and Everyday Feminism, among others. Positive body image is so much more than feeling comfortable in your own skin, And Renee is super passionate about equipping others with practical tools to thrive now, irrespective of how their appearance is. We are also going to be talking with Chelsea Beyer. Chelsea Beyer is a registered clinical counselor and a PhD candidate. She has a private practice in BC's Lower Mainland, where she works with teens, she works with adults, and with couples. As an academic, her research focuses mainly on body image, embodiment, eating disorders, and women's sexuality. She's especially passionate about girls and women's well-being and relationships between mental and physical health. In her downtime, you're going to find her practicing yoga, baking, and cooking with her husband, and maybe even trying out a new restaurant or watching a true crime series on TV. Welcome to both of you. Okay, so I I want to start by just thanking you because A, I know you're both incredibly busy, both in personal worlds and in work worlds, and also just have a whole lot of real gratitude because As much as this topic means a ton to me, I am not immersed in talking about it all the time. And you two have, you've lived in the material, you've lived in the reading space of this, and you have dedicated a lot of time to educating and having conversations with individuals and groups about this topic. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's a pleasure. That's good. I'm excited for today. Um, I would love to start by talking about kind of the big picture around main earlier, early contributors to body image, how we learn to relate to our bodies, how we come to have a, um, an understanding of what we call body image and where that begins. Just any early thoughts about 
the starting point of how that develops in kids? Um, I typically am coming from this, uh, from like an embodiment perspective, which really lends itself a little bit more to like, um, including not just the way that we think about and feel about how our bodies look, but also our experience of living in our bodies. Um, and when we think about what shapes that, both the experience of what we're thinking about and feeling about when um, we're referring to how our bodies look, so body image, as well as when we're thinking about um, our experience of living in our bodies. Uh, what we know is that a lot of research shows that social experiences are really shaping that. So our relationship with parents, our relationship with peers, and then also um, media as well. So the things that we're watching, um, social media is really big too. So those sorts of influences. I think it took me a long time to realize, I think body image really begins in infancy. And because body image is so, it's complex and it's this layered concept, I think in order to really understand it, we actually have to go back to in infancy. So I want you to just imagine that you're holding this newborn baby and this precious little baby is dependent on you. It doesn't know anything about itself yet. It it grows to learn about itself though through the experiences it has and how people respond to it. So Babies have thousands and thousands of experiences just in like the first few months alone that teach them about themselves. You know, when they cry, we pick them up. When they're hungry, we feed them. When they're scared, we comfort them. When they're cold, we clothe them. And these, this happens on a constant basis every day, at night, all the time. And having their needs repeatedly met teaches this baby about their worth and their importance. And so as the baby grows, it develops this deeply, deeply ingrained idea that my needs matter, my needs will be met, my world is safe, the big people in my life are reliable, um, and I'm important. When I speak, things happen. And as we grow from becoming babies to children to teenagers to adults, um, I, I speak about a baby first because that's kind of where we see it best. So babies that don't have their development, that don't have their basic needs met, typically have, you know, developmental legs in their, um, in their stress response systems, in their, um, in their physiology, in their language development, in, in their identity development. They, there's these, there's these legs or there's, there's gaps in this and virtually Every aspect of them is impacted. The way the the messages that we we see, we um, sorry, let me rephrase that. The way we see ourselves is impacted by the messages that we receive from others. And as we get older, this does not change. But we kind of fail to recognize this as a society. So we go from being these highly dependent babies to being fundamentally interdependent. And I think that this is a a topic that's really paramount to understanding body image because underneath a lot of our body image concerns is this deeper question that I think that is actually begging to be asked, which is, do I matter? Am I valuable? Do you see me? And 
And so many of our, and because we're, we're mammals, we're wired to be in conversation, we're wired to be in connection with others. Um, if we don't have these questions answered in a healthy, in a meaningful way, I think we end up struggling a lot more with our body image. If we have, you know, good enough relationships, good enough parenting, good enough peers when we're little, we have these, like Chelsea mentioned, we have these other influences that start coming into our life as we get older and they can answer some of those questions. Do you see me? Am I valuable? Do I matter? Um, but those those other influences can start to speak to, depending on what type of friends we have, what type of media we surround us ourselves with, they answer those questions by looking at our body and our appearance. And, and I think that's a really important way to frame the conversation and to talk about body image because body image, we have these, we have so many years um, we were, where we are interacting in the world and we are um, having messages that are coming at us. And at some point we can have contradictory messages that feed, start to feed into this idea that I'm actually not good enough the way I am. My appearance needs to change in order to be seen as valuable or to have these opportunities. And that can start to plant these seeds that eventually become deeper, that grow into big body image struggles. In both of what you've said, I'm I'm hearing this thread of this developmental piece and relational piece, where this is not existing in a vacuum. Body image is not a thing in and of itself where if we protect our kids just from exposure in media, that, that, uh, that they will naturally develop a healthy relationship with their sense of self. And that that's not, a, it's not as simple as that, that right from the get go, it's about a, a learned a learned, they've received messages that what their body and their mind and their soul needs is met with respect, with understanding, with value. Somehow you understand as another person in relation to me that my self, my whole self matters. And Chelsea, when you're talking about embodiment, that as a perspective, how do you see from that lens, how do you see the development of a healthy, a healthy relationship with one's own body? from that lens. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that for us? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, when we're talking about our experiences of, um, sometimes I'll use the language of having and being a body, um, that as Renee was describing, we relate to other people. We relate to the world around us through our bodies. Um, and that that's a developmental thing, of course, because from the moment we enter the world as human beings, we are in a body, we have a body, we are a body. Um, and so that really is shaped like, uh, like Renee was describing through our interactions with um, the people that are caring for us as we're a baby or as children, um, as well as the interactions with um, other members of people that are in our community, with our friends, those sorts of things too. Um, and that that's really shaped, we kind of get this feedback from other people about um, 
Do, do I matter? Am I worth? I, am I worthy of, of love and belonging? Um, how are other people perceiving me based off of the way that I'm interacting with them, the way that I show up in the world? Um, so that's really shaped through these different sorts of social experiences from the very beginning of when we're born up until the very end of our life. Um, that it is the sort of developmental perspective. As a parent, mm-hmm. I I always listen to these discussions with like hungry to learn as an intentional parent. I want to be doing something toward something, right? If I translate that into what I say to my kids during the day, how I respond to their needs, it sounds to me like my ability to contribute to positive body image, to ground grounding my kids in a good sense of relationship with themselves, their whole selves, that what I can do for them is honor right from the get-go that when they have a voice about something, I can help them be heard by me and I can respond to the need. Because inside what grows out of that is a very steady platform of it's okay that I matter. So I'm not giving myself up or separating myself away from me for the betterment always of somebody else that I'm worthy to. I can hold space in the world so that when my kid becomes a tween or a teen, they are not having to sacrifice themselves in order to feel wanted or needed, but they have a sense of I'm worthy of taking up space, having a voice, being okay with how I feel and think about something. I'm glad that you brought up both space and voice, that those are really inherent to um, developing a really positive, healthy relationship with not just our body image, but our bodies more kind of holistically. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we talk about taking up space, there's this sense of it, I, I can take up this space physically as a human being, um, that I can um, not feel restricted in my movement, that it's okay for me to be here. Um, in fact, I'm invited or welcome to be here physically. And then the voice aspect is really um, what's going on internally, my thoughts, my perspectives, my feelings, all of that really matters and that that's welcomed and invited as well. We know that that's really important for um, kids, teens, adults to really start to develop this sort of healthy relationship with their bodies, not just, again, their body image, um, but their relationship with their bodies. To springboard or to jump off what Chelsea's saying there, I think when I talk to clients and I often use the analogy of a filing cabinet. So our identity is made up of all these different compartments about who we are from our passions, our interests, our capabilities, things that we enjoy doing. And so for so many women, especially from girls starting from such a young age, the filing drawer that relates to our appearance is the one that we are constantly putting papers into. We're constantly opening that drawer. We're talking about what's we're looking at. We're managing our appearance. We're, we are investing in our appearance. We're talking about other people's appearance. And so that drawer gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and full. 
And if we want to have full identities, we have to fill up the other drawers. We have to invest in all of who we are. We have to cultivate our passions. We have to be able to um, grow all these different aspects. And so as a parent, we want to speak value to all those different things. And so it makes so much sense. You know, I think little kids, they're they're all adorable, just the way that they are wired. And so it makes so much sense to say, oh, you are so cute. Oh, you're so adorable in whatever you're wearing. And at the exact same time, if that is the constant message that they are hearing, then that is what is where what we speak into is where we show value. So if we want to be really intentional to grow that entire identity, we have to make sure we're speaking to their identity. Sure, you may be super adorable, but man, you're a fast runner, or you're so smart at this, or you're so capable at this, or I like how thoughtful you, 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 what this, what this thoughtful comment was, or have you ever noticed that you really can uh, make people laugh, like really expanding their sense of self, so that when they think about their own identity, not all their not all their cards are in their appearance in that appearance folder they can pull out different drawers and be like actually you know what i'm a pretty funny person or i'm a pretty athletic person and i'm capable and i'm uh, and i'm hard working because the reality is we're born with one appearance but there's no limit to the other aspects of who we are like there's no there's no ceiling on how creative you can be or there's no ceiling on how compassionate or a good listener you are like all those things can continue to grow so we want to as parents be super intentional about what we're drawing our kids attention to that's an awesome analogy cuz i was th- i often think of the the idea of what we feed. So when we talk about nourishing or growing or developing something, I always think it's how much we physically put into that, how much we invest in it, how much we, so when you use the language speak to it, it's like the same, like, where am I giving it energy? Like, where am I supplying that to grow and giving it nourishment that it needs to develop into its own thing? If I think about that in the bigger picture, not just in the vacuum of family life, but knowing that our kids are exposed to all sorts of food in this area, like the cabinet is being filed very quickly in that one area because of our cultural piece, because of just the, where we live, right? <laughs> yes. What's been valued, right? Which is now the symptom of that is the social media piece. That's not necessarily like right? That comes out of our investment in that, that makes it important. So when that all files our drawer full, I think of our role as parents being so like compensatory, like we have to compensate actively, not just kind of look at, am I contributing to every area of my kids filing cabinet equally, but knowing that our culture is highly focused on that one drawer, our culture is being a constant diet, depending on what you're yeah. surrounded with to the one drawer. Well, yeah. And so yes. I think it's important to say or to realize that not all media is bad. There's a lot of increasingly really well-rounded good media out there. And so a lot of the time, I think people want to throw media un- like under the bus and say, oh, it's yeah. just the media. But the reality is there, there's a lot of good media. So it's what you surround yourself with that's really important. And I think it's important to put that qualifier in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and also thinking about how uh, as parents, for example, you can really work to sort of cultivate this 
ability to engage with media in a way where you can sort of filter out um, what are some of the messages that are really helpful um, versus what are some of the messages that are maybe feeding into, like Renee said, that filing cabinet of my my appearance is where my value comes from. And that value is contingent on like me looking this particular way. Yeah. Um, and that goes loops back to the voice component too. So engaging kids in a sort of um, conversation about, oh, okay, what do you think that's about? What do you think or what do you feel when you're looking at that image or um, this this show that we're watching, having conversations with kids in that way of, oh, interesting. Okay, what do you understand about the way that that character was treated by those other people? Um, that those sorts of, you know, at your your perspectives, your thoughts about these sorts of things, that really matters. And we can have conversations about it. That's safe. That's really welcome. Um, that kids can take that with them into not just their home life, but that out into peer groups at school, et cetera, into the other activities that they're doing. They can essentially bring that sort of filter with them. That's brilliant. That That is, okay, quick insert of a story, if I may, because <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a parent, when you make a ton of mistakes, there, you, sometimes you need to just remind yourself that you're doing something right. So the other day, my uh, now 10-year-old out of the blue said to me, she has like some free reign in media, like we've selected some YouTube channels. I hate YouTube, but anyways, that's a, that's a thing. But like on Netflix and some of the shows she's watching, we have moved from a place of like, no, you can't, I'm putting a filter or a boundary for you. That's not a healthy viewing option into more of a, why would you like to watch that? What are you getting out of that? Uh, what do you notice about how people treat each other in this, right? So just that conversation that you're having. And the other day she came to me and she's like, um, why, why did you never let me watch, uh, princess movies? I don't, I never watched princess movies when I was little. And I said, huh. And I thought of telling her the answer. And then I thought I would, I wonder how she would frame this. So I said, why do you think that I didn't let you? And she goes, they're all skinny. They all get rescued by men. And it's kind of dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, yes, like the winning moment of like, okay, all those no's because it was developmentally appropriate for a time where I wasn't going to just let her decide for herself what was because she's vulnerable and she would take that in and not be able to think critically. We're now at a place where I'm asking her more often to think about how this is going to potentially impact her and catch it herself. And from that lens, she's starting to question like backwards thinking of like, there's a reason that that wasn't allowed, right? And now we're having a lot of conversation in media about uh, like things like language, the language we use, how we speak about other people, the words we use. And she's saying things like, I shouldn't watch that show or listen to that song because I noticed there's a lot of swearing in it. And I said, okay, but why can't you hear that? Why is it not helpful? Because she said, well, I tend to use it more if I hear it more. Mm. So that is like, okay, this feels now like I'm finally in that phase of parenting where I'm seeing output from all the no's that I had to contend with, all the tantrums about, why can't I watch that? So just thinking about all the parents who are in that earlier phase of not yet here and what yeah. they can expect to see fruit from, even though it always feels like a fight or it can, always feels like limiting. Yeah. Can I mention something or 
speak to something that you just said there, which I really loved that whole story. So by the time, you know, our kids are 10 years old, like your daughter, they have had like millions of these experiences that that have shaped their foundational beliefs about who they are. They've laid the, it's like the groundwork to the architecture of our belief system has been laid and it's largely outside of our conscious awareness because so as children we don't come with the tools to understand what we're seeing around us it has to be taught our prefrontal cortex that front part of our brain that's evolved in you know abstract thinking picking apart nuances, being able to decipher sophisticated and subtle messages. That's not online when we're little. And so we need our parents around us to be that external part of our brain, to be that higher order thinking part of our brain. And and then too often, we have these conversations when kids are becoming teens and tweens about why are they struggling with themselves? Well, it's because they've had so many years um, where we haven't, we have we we haven't done help them. We haven't cultivated those tools for them. We haven't helped them develop that skill set. And so, having those conversations, and I love the curiosity piece there. Just being curious about what you're watching, how people are interacting, why they're portrayed a certain way, um, is really important in in strengthening that muscle and strengthening that prefrontal cortex to help our kids as they become older to critically understand the messages that they are receiving and also to be able to reject the messages that they don't want because we can't protect our kids forever. That's not reality. No parent wants their child living at home and they're like, 20 years old, way younger than that, thinking for them. 20 is okay. They can live at home when they're 20, but you want them to be able to have the ability to think for themselves. And I think that teaching them this media literacy, which is what we're talking about here, Mm -hmm. is it's like giving them that layer of armor because the messages are going to keep bombarding at them for their entire life. But then they have the ability to take in what they want to keep the good and reject the bad. Can we talk about the warning signs then? So now that we're like in that tween teen, I often hear parents kind of start to panic at that point of like, it's the first time they're seeing real flags, but they almost can't even name the flags. They just have the sense like my kid's not secure in who they are. They're starting to compromise or accommodate. They're starting to like dress a certain way just to fit in. They're starting like, what would you name the flags of like, what should we pay attention to? And the second part of that is when those things show up, how do we enter that conversation with them well? How do we initiate good conversations and responses to the flags? Because I think they can be scary for us and we might go in not in the best way, which right away can signal to kids, that's not a safe topic to talk to you about. So if just knowing that we can get activated by that ourselves, can you give us some tools about what the flags are, how to see them, and how to start the conversation with our kids in a, in a healthy, safe way? 
When I'm when I'm thinking about flags, I'm often thinking about well, a few different things. One is sort of the language that's used. So how are kids talking about themselves and also other people? Um, are they focused in on things that are just not good enough or missing, or are they being really hypercritical about themselves? Um, going back to what we had initially described around like this um, kind of worth or value that's often, often underlying body image issues, that like hearing how kids talk about their sense of self-worth can be really important. Um, especially we can see that, that uh, like a sense of self-worth or being good enough or being acceptable, if that's all tied to um, the way that they look, looking like other kids or looking a, a certain way, looking like someone else, um, and that the way that they look is not good enough or there's something wrong about that, them and the way that they look, I think about that as being kind of a red flag. Um, I also think about how they're talking about other other kids as well. So depending on where it's focused on, if they're talking about, again, bringing that sort of critical eye to um, a, a kid being good enough or acceptable or um, not as not as cool or whatever it is based off of how, how the other kid looks, that those sorts of things, I really start to they kind of turn my ears to, to that is, oh, okay, there's something going on here. That makes me kind of think, go back to the filing cabinet. Yeah. image, right, of how much time are we spending reading the files in that drawer and mm -hmm. participating in handing those flyers out to other people, right? Like, how much time do is our kids spending sitting in that drawer? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I think another piece with how much time our kids are sitting in that drawer or we're sitting in that drawer, things that relate to our appearance, I can't overemphasize the media literacy enough I know we often think of that as being for younger kids like I did talk about because we do need to equip them when they're little and when they're as they're little as they get older and become teenagers but the reality is we we as adults continuously need to practice media literacy because the persuasive design behind these social media apps behind a lot of the platforms that we're using now are so sophisticated that they are pulling on our psychological vulnerabilities. And it does not matter if you have a PhD in this field or you are a brain scientist and they, they pull you in because they're, they're, they're preying on something that is common to our humanity. And so and so being aware of how platforms like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, how they have these methods that draw us in, keep us in, and keep us hooked on these platforms. And I go back to these platforms because we are living embodied beings, like Chelsea mentioned in, in, in the beginning. We, we experience the world around us, but when we are constantly living on a screen, that that hinders our experience of, uh, of a lived reality. And so if the average child or let's say teenager is spending between like seven to eight hours a day consuming media, and if they are scrolling Instagram for, you know, four or five hours a day, they're on TikTok, they're, if they are 
immersed in these worlds, they just simply aren't going to be able to have the experiences to to develop their entire identity because you want to be able to experience your body as powerful, as good. And it's hard to do that when you're experiencing life through your fingertips on a screen in front of you. So as a parent, I would say as as ourselves, as these technologies continue to evolve and there are new ones that pop up, we have to know how they're impacting everybody who uses them. And then I'm going to add a, a... it's important to know that our, because our children's brains are developing, they're actually more prone to these techniques because of, um, of, of where they are, their stages of their development in their brain. So we have to be aware of what's of, of these technologies and become media literate in them. And then at the same time, we also have to get off them. And as parents, we can do experiences where we are together with our children, whether they're children, their tweens, their teens, or however old, old they are, where we're actually living life in our in our bodies together. That's a, an amazing image to me because I I often think about my strategy for getting my kid off a screen is in a negative headspace. So it's more like what I don't want them to be doing. So I want to. I want them to stop doing something because I think there's some harm in what's happening. So I'm, but your, that perspective makes me think, but what am I doing with the time when they're not on it? Like it's, it's not just a withdraw from the thing that might be all consuming, but then how, what am I nurturing? What filing drawer am I investing in when I, when they're not plugged in and I have opportunity to give them resilience in other areas where I offer value to Let's go feel good about the way our legs move, the way we jump, the way we play, the way we talk, the way we have laughter, the way we pillow fight, the way we chase the dog, the way we like. The way you experience the sun on your face, the wind in your face, just life in general. Yeah. 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 So a little bit, sometimes like a, like a scale that I start to think about where, um, we start to tip one end of the scale gets really weighed down by all the time and attention and activities that are really focused on how our body looks. When we start to see that coming out and there's not a lot tipping the scale to the other direction where we start to have these experiences, like the two of you are saying of what does it feel like to be in my body? Can I pay attention to those experiences where I feel strong or I feel fast or I'm listening to and the different cues in my body, they're telling me that I'm hungry or that I'm enjoying this experience or that I feel alive. Um, if we're missing out on those experiences, then um, that, that's really missing out on this huge, important aspect of what it is to be a, a human being. And then I think it goes into that sort of red flag area as well, where ooh, so much of the focus, so much of the attention, the energy is really um, on that how does my body look and, and way less on what does it feel like to be in my body? And, and speaking to that, where, what we focus on shapes our reality. There's a phrase that I absolutely love by Dan Siegel that says where attention goes, neural firing flows, neural connections grow. And so if we are constantly speaking about our bodies, be that, um, good attention or negative attention, we're building up this neural network in our brain that's still focused on us as a bo- on our bodies. 
And we want to expand that because it's our, our bodies are good and valuable and, and they let us experience life. And so we also have to experience life too. I think that's been a bit of my, um, it's starting to change now, but a bit of the problem that I've had with some body positive movements is it's still this hyper focus on our body and to the detriment of acknowledging our entire being. We're, we're beings that, and we want to live. We get one life to live. And I always think about like when I'm like 70, 80, 90 years old, my grandma's going to be 102 this year, which I think is like incredible. And if I get to be 102, I want to look back on my life and think, did I live? And did I live it well? And not, and, and so I want to be able to, that, that guides how the experiences and the activities I, that I do myself and the, the ones that I encourage my kids to do as well too. It's holistic. It's broad. So not, it sounds like in conversation with our kids, it should go broad too. We're not giving language just to speaking about whatever problematic flag arises. So I think about like concrete my kid doesn't eat as much as they used to. I can see them stopping halfway their meal. Mm. They're not talking about it. They're not saying why. They're just saying, I'm not hungry anymore. And I know there's something going on there. That they are probably hungry and they're not letting themselves eat. Or, you know, those, like that we could go in to that conversation needing the specificity of that conversation by saying, let's talk about the food that's on your plate or what you're not eating. Or we can broaden that conversation. What would that look like to bring it back to the bigger lens of how do we frame this in the so that we teach our kids there's a bigger thing happening, a broader aspect of self, and maybe this is what's going on in a specific way to express that. Yeah, I'm thinking often about the importance of um, communicating both through our words and our actions to to others, to our kids that our bodies um, give us really important, valuable cues about what we're needing or what's important to us, and that our bodies are um, really valuable and worth caring for. And so if we're going to, um, for example, go back to what you were saying, Karen, about this sort of uh, example of food, and so noticing that maybe your kid isn't eating quite as much as they used to and really wondering what's going on there, having some ideas of what might be going on there, that I think emphasizing the importance of listening to our bodies, listening to the fact that our bodies are telling us that we're needing fuel, that we need the energy to do the things that we love to do, um, and also really emphasizing the importance of care, too, that it's important to take care of our bodies and that our bodies are really worth uh, that sort of care. Um, and we can't take care of our bodies unless we're not listening to them. We have a lot of uh, sort of messaging around uh, reasons for why we should stop paying attention to our bodies. We're especially girls as they're growing up are, t are often told to override different cues about what um, feels good or um, hunger, for example, their desires to override those, to not listen to them. And if we're really getting into that habit, then we can get so good at kind of shutting that off or overriding those cues. So I think providing the opportunity to have conversations about the importance of actually listening to those cues um, from our bodies about what we're needing or what we want 
and the importance of actually listening to them because our bodies are really good, that it's important to take care of our bodies because our bodies are the way that we engage with the world. It's the way that we live our lives. It's the way that we interact with other people. That I think that's sort of a starting foundation um, and perhaps an um, umbrella to think of like encapsulating the different types of conversations that we'd have with our kids um, around food, for example. I think even then just to add something about how, how would you practically do that would be just to practice curiosity. Yeah. Tentative curiosity with your child. It could be like, Oh, I wonder, I wonder why, um, I wonder why you're not hungry right now or why you're, why you're not eating some of your food on your plate because it's, you know, it's this time in the afternoon and you've, had a full day and this is what we've all done. So I guess your body probably needs nourishment. I wonder if there's something else that's bugging you and almost just musing out loud about what you suspect there might be it. And then having those conversations and practicing, practicing curiosity enough, just thinking about not even necessarily just your daughter, but as a, as a, as a strategy to be able to let your child know that you've noticed it's, something that you're wondering about and as you muse out loud about about it um on a consistent basis potentially like I'm not saying you probably just can't do a one-off on this conversation that you have out loud in your head mm-hmm. my guess is that they'll they'll slowly start to come around to speaking about giving clues as to you know why food is being left on their plate or why you know whatever whatever the concern might be yeah. And you mentioned to Karen a while back that often like fear can really get in the way on the on our own behalf, right? As a parent, this sort of fear of, oh, if I talk about this thing, am I going to know what to say? Or if I talk about it, am I drawing attention to something and making it a big yes, deal when it's not? Yep. Yeah. And I think it's, I like to remind people that the reverse is true that typically if we're talking about something it's really going to lower any sort of potential shame and shame really brings up this okay we got to hide it we got to keep it secret don't talk about it so if we're talking about something even if it's really scary that addresses shame and it can really start to create this sort of environment in our homes and in our relationships to say hey it's okay to talk about this um, it's not a big deal if we talk about it because we're having these little conversations throughout the day that's really normalized. It also creates this sense of safety that, okay, my my parent um, or these other people in my life aren't scared to talk about these things. I can handle it. And so if I'm struggling with this issue, if I'm not sure about this, that I can come and talk to them about it as well. And that's going to be okay. That's going to be welcomed. When you say that, I think about adult clients that I'm working with who struggle in their sense of sexuality, their relationship with their body in terms of I'm worthy of receiving intimacy. I can be touched and feel okay. I can be like this relationship with our bodies in that vein of how much when we go back in their, in their stories, they thread that back to those years where their body was changing and nobody talked to them about it. Absolutely. The shame, the shame set in right there. And it wasn't because anybody shamed them. It was because nobody acknowledged it out loud. And then they, by default, started to grow shame around something that we felt needed to stay silent. We don't talk about this. Therefore, maybe something's wrong with me. I'm the only one experiencing this. Right. Those conversations, I think in that, thread of 
our bodies change, our desires change, our sense of attraction to things, things happen in our bodies. And we don't, if we can't talk about that. Yeah. I just, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's a, to me, that's a big stage of our sense of self, our big, one big filing drawer that I think is a real common one for parents to get freaked out about not know how to talk about and so we think we're doing our kids a favor by not talking about it you're saying do it anyway even if it's awkward difficult don't avoid it exactly and even in in going into the awkwardness or not being sure if you have all the right words or the answers that that in and of itself models that it's okay we don't have to have it all together Um, And like you were saying, too, that these things, these conversations that we're having about our bodies that might be around food or how we feel about the way that our body looks or not feeling like we fit in because of the way that we look, that can extend all the way into different areas of life, whether it's, yeah, like you were saying, sexuality, um, whether it's self-worth, whether it's even getting into all these different areas of like even substance use and stuff like that too. So these little conversations can have a really big sort of um, impact in a really powerful way. Uh, We've just finished a series on couples relationships and uh, attunement to our kids and focused a lot on Gottman's work. And that that threaded it for me of small things often, small things often. That principle applies to so many things that it's not just let's sit down and talk about it. It's let's always be talking about it. It's always a thing we talk about. It's how we go about it. It's not, okay, now's the time. <laughs> let's, oh, you got your period. Let's have a sit down and talk about it. It's not just that, right? Like I did my job. I, I gave instructions. I said what you could expect, done. (laughs) It's the how we notice changes, what we feel about those changes. How do you embed that conversation, small things often, all the time? And because our bodies are meant to adapt and change, like we don't go from an infant body to a child body and (laughs) then to a teenage body and stay there. Like we get we get adult bodies and then those adult body change bodies change as well too. And so as we talk about our own experience of our own bodies, like my, my, my children, uh, my older children, especially have seen me now go from be postpartum. I have seen my body grow. And then um, once I've delivered the baby over time, get smaller and then grow again and then get smaller as um, my body adapts and change, but my body doesn't look now. What it looks like now looks so different than what it looked like pre-pregnancy. And the way I speak about my body, the way I commented on myself, um, all of those things impact my child, are going to impact my children's understanding of of bodies in general. So, and it's, it's not like a one-off conversation because we are embodied beings. We live life through our bodies. So we, our clothes fit differently. Sometimes, sometimes clothes don't feel good. Sometimes we aren't very hungry. Sometimes we're ravenous. We can't get away from these conversations. And so just keeping that on the forefront of our minds and speaking with curiosity and really 
likening it to an onion, also like pulling back the layers. Okay, so you, even if we're parents and we're uncomfortable talking about this, well, maybe it's because we're uncomfortable in our own bodies. Well, why are we uncomfortable in our own bodies? And practicing curiosity around, well, what were what what would have been some experiences that have made me dislike my body or made me feel uncomfortable being in my own skin? Um, so ha- having that self awareness piece, but just it is important for us as parents, but just again, yeah, practicing curiosity and um, bringing bringing it up in in frequently, I think is really important to help build that resilience as well for not only our children but also for us as well. That we won't get into it in any depth, but I just want to highlight that piece that you said about paying attention to our own concept of of sense of self and how our own adult relationship with our body. We need to be really aware of that because I think most of us subconsciously speak from that place all the time and don't notice it because it's what's normal for us. And we may not realize what we are putting out um, on display for our kids in very small ways very, very small ways, right? So just for us to give ourselves permission to pause and in this bigger conversation or this area of like, how do I parent my kids to have positive body image, positive sense of self? Part of this recipe is taking a look at what did I learn about myself? What am I plagued by? What what water did I drink along the way that taught me to think a certain way? And how am I living that out? Even if it's in tiny ways that I you know, I've already worked on and come a long way in, but what's what's still manifesting out of that? Um, that it's it's part of this parenting piece to stay in touch with where we're at. It's not just about what we're imparting on our kids, but we're still growing and changing and learning and adapting and figuring it out. Yeah, and I think I think something that it's also important to remember to realize that. This com- we're not. I don't know if we're ever going to get to a place where we're like, I love everything about my body. Embrace the cellulite. Embrace the wrinkles. It's all good. It's it's this deeper appreciation and respect for our bodies. That this deeper knowledge, knowing that my body helps me live, and it and you know I feel the hug because of someone who put their arms around me, and that felt really good. If uh, oftentimes parents will f- view these snippets these conversations as like yes and I want more so where do you send parents who are invested in this who when we drop off our call say "Uh uh-huh and I want to do more reading or more investigating I want to now take this as part of a journey and learn more about how I can support my kids in this area what would you recommend on our website, uh, www.freetobetalks.com. I'm not sure if you can list that in the show notes. Under the tab resources, we have lots of resources that are free downloads. There's gratitude journals. There's screensavers you can put on your phone to 
help you be mindful of where your attention is going that parents can access that are for free. We've listed books on there, uh, documentaries, interesting YouTube talks that I'm up constantly uploading. When I find something interesting, I love to share it. So then I, I will post it on there as well too. So on our website Fantastic. under the resource section, there's a lot of free resources and then books that people can download. And then also there's the, the free to be program. It was designed to be run in an academic setting or teacher, an educational setting, I should say. But over time, we realized, man, parents are the ones that are having these really important conversations with their kids. And so we created a parent version of the program. So we have, you can check that out online as well, too, under um, our free to be program and become equipped to to have these conversations and if you want someone more to hold your hand having these conversations this is what the program the program does it's a scripted manual that walks you through teaching your children how to be media literate expanding their attention around who they are as a person and focusing on appreciation for what their bodies can do and all of who they are essentially I will definitely add that in the show notes. That's a great link. Okay. Sounds like a lovely hub. <laughs> I've got a few things listed there. That's good. Chelsea, what would you recommend yeah. for parents for further reading? Yeah, I I find that we've been talking a lot about like curiosity and sort of these aspects of, of kindness and trying to foster the sort of compassion, kindness, talking to ourselves from a place of kindness um, and really focusing in on like, how do we, how do we emphasize, how do we develop how do we get more in touch with our sense of self-worth? Um, I love Kristen Neff, Dr. Kristen Neff's work on self-compassion. Um, I believe her website is uh, selfcompassion.org, but she has a, a few different books on that topic as well that are, that are fantastic. Um, and then also I was thinking about, I know eating has come up a few different times. Um, and if we're getting into talking about what does it look like for parents to be more in touch with not just uh, their own sorts of internal cues, uh, listening to their body, taking care of their body, um, but also how does that start to get woven into the way that they're parenting and, and speaking with their kids. Um, I really love the sort of intuitive eating um, work and um, Evelyn Tribal, she does a lot of intuitive eating um, kind of work on social media as well as has a book on intuitive eating that's really great as well. There's a couple of things that I would recommend. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You guys, great conversation. Thanks so much. Yay. It was a pleasure to, to talk with you about this. Thanks for spending time with me today. Remember to check out the show notes for related resources. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, or you can also subscribe to my online learning page at my.thrive-life forward slash LRL series, where you'll get updates, extra tools for your toolkit. And if there's a topic that you want me to cover in this podcast, please shoot me a message. I would love to hear from you. Shoulder to shoulder with you, knee deep in this mud. I will see you back here next time.